today, God, that, Lord, we'd be sensitive to your truth, and, Lord, that we would hear from you, God, with obedience. I pray, Lord, that you would speak powerfully through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wanted to mention to you uh, out of the gate that you may be thinking, uh, do they take up an offering at this church? Because, you know, since the pandemic, we've had a plate, offering plate on the table over there. Some churches you get accused of talking about money too much, and I might rightfully be accused of not talking about money enough, because uh, it plays a, uh, a part in our uh, worship, doesn't it? Uh, giving is a, a very natural uh, response of worship, and so I promise you, uh, or I apologize for not mentioning that to you more often. So if the Lord lays on your heart to give tithes and offerings, you can do so on that table as you leave or as you come in. This morning, I'm honored to have my mom here. So uh, I'm so grateful she's here. I love her dearly, and um, she's available afterwards to, for you to ask any question. <laughs> but... Uh, this morning, uh, I, the title of this message is, um, that's really small, <laughs> Encouragement in the Midst of Warning. <laughs> Encouragement in the Midst of Warning. Um, and, and what we're going to be looking at today is we're going to be looking at how in the midst of this passage in Hebrews chapter 10, which is one of the warning passages that we have been looking at throughout this letter it's important to see, you know, there's five of them, Hebrews 2, Hebrews 3, Hebrews 5, Hebrews 10, Hebrews 12, and, and every one of these plays a part. Um, yes, this weekend on Friday, I left with Will, and we drove down to near Carrollton, Georgia to watch Luke in a cross-country race on Saturday, and they ran at this nature preserve that was in the middle of nowhere. And it was amazing because you got back to this nature preserve in the middle of the woods and you got down to the bottom. And I was amazed because this nature preserve was collecting parking and they were collecting $20 a car. And I was just trying to figure out where the money was going because there was a lot of cars. I mean, a ton of cars. And you get, uh, it was going to the nature preserve and to something else. But anyway, uh, you get down to this field and it was amazing how big this field was. It was huge. I'd say, I may be wrong, but I'm thinking you could put at least 30 football fields. Chris, you agree with that? Okay. And uh, a bunch. And, like, it was huge. And so the race was crazy because, you know, normally at a cross-country race, you, you see the kids running for about 4.7 seconds. And this one, you could see them the entire field. And if you, depending on where you were standing, so me and Will were up there. And you could see them start, and they take off running, and then they just start disappearing for a little bit. But it's basically like two laps around this massive field. And it was really cool. So we got there, and the girls were starting out. And they were running, and we were sitting there, and here they come. And it was amazing because you got all these families, all these, uh, you got Scottsboro, but you had a ton of Georgia schools, a ton of Georgia people. And you had all these people and all their schools, and you could see it. I mean, they were coming, and they, that first group, man, they were tired, and they were pushing it, and everybody, you could hear the roar of the crowd as they got in with about a quarter of a mile. And everyone at that race was like, come on, come on. I mean, they were screaming all kinds of things, yelling times out to kids, kids would glance over, 
And it was like they were saying, come on, don't quit now. You've come too far. Keep going. That's exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 39. He's saying, look, in the midst of this warning, I've got encouragement. The encouragement that he's offering these dear Christians is that he has full confidence that they are not going to shrink back, but they are going to continue firm. You see, these warnings are not meant to create doubt. These warnings are meant to keep pushing them on for endurance. There's a big difference. I was reviewing a little bit because last time we started some of these observations, and we looked at, in this text, we see a purposeful warning. You may be like, what does that mean? The warning is not simply for the apostate. The warning is not for our neighbor who's not walking with God. The warning is for us. It's not my sister nor my brother, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. And when we look at this warning, God is intending to use it in a purifying way in your life. He's intending for it to play a purpose in your life. It is a means to help us arrive at a safe, safely at our destination, as Brian Borgman says. I love that phrase. It, it, it's a purposeful warning. It's not just something for people that doesn't apply to me. God uses these warnings in the lives of his people, just like, you know, rails on the road to keep us on the highway. The Spirit uses these warnings in a sanctifying way, a purposeful warning. We saw a consequential rejection. We saw really, really tragic rejections where these people deliberately, in an attitude of unrepentant living, had rejected God. They had trampled underfoot the Son of God. They had profaned the blood of the covenant, and they had outraged the Spirit of grace. Well, this morning, we're going to continue, and we're going to see number three, a terrifying judgment, and we're going to see number four, we're going to see an encouraging exhortation, an encouraging exhortation. So why don't we jump in here, and we see that number three, we go into this terrifying judgment, this terrifying judgment. When we look at this terrifying judgment, why don't we go back to verse 26? For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. I was going through these, these verses, 26 through 31, and we saw those, the consequential rejection and now we look at the terrifying judgment. And I just started circling the words and the phrases that I really believe were the most crucial in order to understand this. The first one I circled was this idea of deliberately. Deliberately. If we go on sinning deliberately, it's speaking of a willful, unrepentant, persistent attitude against the things of God. It's not speaking about um, sinning. It's not because First John says if we say we're without sin, we, we lie and the truth is not in us. And, and not only that, it's important to let Scripture interpret Scripture because the John says, Apostle John says, 
if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And he uses the present tense, which speaks about all of the Christian life. When Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis to the door of Wittenberg, the first one spoke about the fact that all of the Christian life is one of repentance. And so he's not speaking about sinning, but he's speaking about a mindset and he's speaking about a disposition. He's speaking about someone who will not, someone who is not pliable, someone who's not bendable to the things of God, someone who says, how dare you approach me with the word? I'll tell you, in counseling situations, the people that make me the most concerned are the people who basically say, I will not. You ever heard people say, well, why do you pick on that sin? Why not other people who sin? I'll tell you why. Sometimes it is an issue not of the sin, but of the heart towards the sin. You got a person who is involved in adultery and the church goes to that individual and lovingly seeks to point them back to the truth. Ultimately, what you're looking for is a pliable heart of repentance. Because if there's a heart of repentance, guess what? There can be restoration. Because we're all capable, other than, for, as Christians, other than the blasphemy against the Spirit, we are all capable of any sin. But the attitude here that he's speaking of is he's speaking of a willful, unrepentant, resistant attitude. And then he says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, what does that mean? but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Well, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, as one man said, because we nullify the very sacrifice for sins if we're willfully unrepentant. If we reject and reject and reject and reject, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins in our case because we literally are pushing away the only way that will save us. The only way that will save us now is being pushed down, trampled upon. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire. We see this idea of deliberate. We see this fearful expectation of judgment. And the word is very interesting here. And it's important, may we never misrepresent the character of God, only emphasizing his love, but never emphasizing his wrath. You ever notice that? If we only speak of God as love, but never speak of the judgment of God, we've got an incorrect understanding of the character of God. We, we have to be careful because so many people in their attempt to make God palatable to the world only speak of certain characteristics which they think the world will be appeased by. But in this case, we see the holiness of God displayed. And we see that when we reject a holy, sovereign God, we need to be terrified. The phrase here is fearful expectation means dreadful, horrifying, terrible. It speaks of the judgment of God that we do not want to face. When we nullify the only answer to our predicament, 
we are faced with a horrifying outcome, one that is dreadful. The, the, Jonathan Edwards' sermons, the one that was the most popular in America over the last hundred years, was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it's still used in literature classes. It's still used in all kinds of different college situations. And so often it is used in a way of how outrageous is it that the Christian God would be so angry? Well, here's our problem. Our problem, it's almost like we've flipped it, as one man said, and instead of sinners in the hands of an angry God, it's God in the hands of angry sinners. We don't understand the character of God. We question God at every chance. That's not fair. How dare God do that? But we gotta be careful, don't we? We gotta be careful, and it's meant to lead us to humility. It's meant to lead us to a response of, wow, look at the greatness of God. May I never tread so arrogantly that I lose sight that the God who has given me breath is God who is holy and who is the creator over his world that he created. And he's a God because of his holiness who cannot look upon sin. He's a God that cannot allow sin in his presence. And you may be thinking, how in the world can we survive such a thought of standing before God. But isn't it comforting this morning to think that those in Christ Jesus can hold to the promise, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Can you imagine the goodness and kindness of God that would literally pour his wrath out on his own son in order that we might live. Because while we see a terrifying judgment for those who reject Christ, this morning the gospel gives us hope. Romans 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you realize this morning, by the grace of God, the Bible teaches that your sin has to be dealt with. Either you will pay the punishment of the wrath of God on you for eternity, or you will look unto the one who paid the price for you. This morning, think about it. This morning, the, the gospel invitation is so drastic. And think about it. If we had not looked at Hebrews 1, 1 through chapter 10, verse 30, it would still be a wonderful truth. But we've been looking at 10 chapters and almost 11 chapters filled with the supremacy of Jesus and who he is and what he's accomplished and how he's our great high priest. And because he is our great high priest, he goes through the veil on our behalf and he gives us access and he gives us a way towards him. Praise be to God. But we see here that 
those that reject, there's going to be a fury of fire. Circle that phrase. A fury of fire is horrifying. Isaiah 26, O Lord, your hand is lifted up. And in verse 11, he says, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. It's a consuming fire. It's interesting, um, when we think of this, we're looking at, we're looking at this, this, this um, look at this passage. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's the heart of the gospel of Jesus. But look at the next one. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. There we are. That's the predicament. Look unto Jesus. But the judgment that people will face is severe. Isaiah chapter 66 says it this way, and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. How much more severe? Look at verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. What is he speaking about there? He's quoting out of Deuteronomy 17. And he's speaking not just of somebody who would break the law, but he's speaking about people that would embrace idolatry. And they would be condemned in their idolatry. But he uses the lesser to greater. It's sort of like uh, growing up, if you were involved in a practice on a team, and if you were five minutes late, the coach said you had to run uh, 50 laps. Well, imagine if you don't even show up at practice, and you don't even tell anybody where you are. You can only imagine that the punishment is greater than 20 laps, because there is a lesser to greater comparison. And that's exactly what he's doing. He's saying, now, wait a minute. If under the law, when people embraced idolatry, they would face God's judgment, how much more shall it be when they trample underfoot the Son of God, when they profane the blood of the covenant, when they outrage the spirit of grace? You see what he's doing? He's saying, wait a minute. You mean to tell me that all the law was to do was to be a shadow to point to the substance. If you fall under the judgment of the shadow, now that the new covenant has been announced through Jesus Christ, how much more shall you face the judgment of God? How much worse punishment? And look at how he did it. We saw this last time. We saw the consequential rejection and that trampling, the profaning, the outraging, they outrage the spirit of grace. This is, this is exactly the idea of what we see when we look at the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's speaking of this willful, resistant rejection. They outrage the spirit of grace. He speaks about that outrage. He speaks about the judgment of God. And then in verse 31, look what he does. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a fearful thing to fall into his hands. The living God, I was, I was, it's interesting because so much of this passage is dealing with judgment. And we talked about this on Sunday night, but normally, you know, when we think about angels in the 
um, Bible, because of, you know, media, we think of these little babies floating in the air. You know, the weirdest, strangest babies, you know, hardly wearing anything, floating in the air and on toilet paper commercials. But think about it. That, that just shows you how our theology can be affected by the way we view things. Angels in the Bible were terrifying. They brought judgment and they brought death. When the angels appeared to announce the good news, they had to comfort those precious shepherds in that field to let them know that they weren't coming with judgment, but they were coming with the kindness of God. I tell you, what's amazing is if we can get a grasp or just a sense of the holiness of God, we begin to get such a deeper appreciation for the kindness of God revealed in Jesus Christ. The holiness of God that brings judgment on sinners. But fourthly, the fourth observation this morning, the fourth observation we're jumping into, not only a terrifying judgment, but an encouraging exhortation. And I don't know about you, but I'm glad there's encouraging words here. I'm thankful there's encouraging words. We have to deal with the hard passages of scripture, but aren't you thankful for the grace of God and Jesus that gives us hope this morning? Because we would all face the judgment and the wrath of God, and we would have no hope. But there's hope for us in Christ. You may be here today thinking, how in the world am I going to endure? I've got so many unknowns going on in my life. What is the future going to look like? People are fretting as they think about the state of the world. People are thinking, wait a minute, if things are like this now, what are they going to look like in five years? Have you had any of those thoughts? Anybody? Just me? Some of y'all are, nah, there we go, there we go. We all face those kind of thoughts. But I got good news for you. You see, these people were facing absolute persecution, but they were encouraged that because of what God had done in them, because of how he had enlightened them, he was going to be faithful to them all the way to the end. And this morning, we have the same confidence, the very same confidence but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. I love this. I mean, here he is. I mean, if you wondered about these people, they were the real deal. They had gone through some intense stuff. I, um, I was reading about some experiences of Christians. I'm going to share it to you in a second. But it just reminded me that the one common theme in history of people that have gone before us is that they have literally experienced the reality of what Paul told Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But there's hope in it. There's hope. He says, recall the former days. Remember the former days after you were enlightened. You endured a hard struggle. He says, remember, remember, remember when you were enlightened. Remember when you were enlightened. I love this because uh, it's easy to read this. And because there's so many themes here, I don't know about you, but I'm guilty of that all the time. I read a passage like this and I sort of jump ahead. But you can almost miss things because I'm thinking, wait a minute, what kind of struggle did they endure? What kind of struggle? What, what were they shamed for? What did they, how did they experience reproach? 
What, what does it mean they were partners with those so treated? But don't miss out on the phrase, after you were enlightened. Recall the former days when after, that's a miracle. Recall the former days when after your eyes were opened. Recall the former days when after you were given a new heart. You were given new affections. You were given new inclinations. You were given a new appetite. Don't forget. I tell you, sometimes it's, it's healthy and it's biblical to reflect back on our conversion, isn't it? I'll tell you, I, uh, I've been cleaning out my office. It's taken about four years, but it's clean right now. So take pictures because it may not be like that again. Everybody thought I was going to another church and this is going to be, I was going to announce I was going in view of a call. But uh, I found so many things, y'all. It was amazing. I found so many things. And one of, the, one of the things I found, Mom, you'll remember this. I found that little autograph book I had when I was seven years old. I got an autograph book. And so rather, I, I didn't realize that you were supposed to get famous people to autograph. I just got everybody to autograph it. <laughs> so, like, if you look in my autograph book, it's in there if you want to see it. It's awesome. It'd be, it's just, like, these people. And they're just like, hey, I'm proud to know you, Stephen. And they, and they sign their name. And uh, it's, you wouldn't know who they are, and I don't really remember who they were, but they're in my autograph book. <laughs> but there's one guy that, uh, they're all special to me because they represent the church family I was in in Lexington, Mississippi, at First Baptist Lexington. But there was one signature in there that really got me because it was one of those that probably should have been in the autograph book, and it was from a guy named Roy Hessian. And Roy Hessian wrote The Calvary Road, and and, and I took a photocopy of it. You can't see it, but we're such a small church, I can do this, and you can see it. But, but this is the photocopy of what he did. He, he did a little picture, and he's got three crosses, and he says, uh, one of them um, said he was sorry. And he says, have you? Question mark. And at the bottom, it's interesting. He says, April 7th, 1982. And then it says, we were so happy to be present at your baptism. And that meant a lot to me. And immediately when I saw that picture, it wasn't just that uh, a famous pastor from time of old that's gone on to be with the Lord that influenced literally thousands of people from England, but it was the fact that it brought me back to remembering my baptism. And it made me think back to being an eight-year-old kid. And I remember looking back, and while sanctification's a process, and I fought with my sister, and I argued with my mom, and I rolled my eyes to my father. God began doing a work in me. And I remember things, things that point back to a change of affections as a young man. I remember my parents going out of the country because dad was speaking at a, at a, at a conference. And I remember going to this people's house. And I remember being in a bedroom. And I remember being scared. And I remember opening up my Bible and praying that God would bring me comfort. And I remember the Lord comforting me through his word. I remember in those files in my office, right next to where I'd found my autograph book, I found some other pages that were notes that I took in church from 1984, 1983, 1985. What would make me want to take notes in a church service when I was eight years old? Because of course, if there's not children's church, kids can't know God. Holy Spirit was working in my heart. 
he began to give me a love for his word. And see what he's doing here? He's saying, look, recall, remember the former days. After you were enlightened, these people, you yourself, all of our situations and experiences vary and they're different and God works at different times and in different ways. But we all have special memories if we're believers in Christ of when God brought us to faith. But what happened after they were enlightened? They endured a hard struggle with sufferings. The word here speaks of an athletic contest that is difficult. It it speaks of a, a, a brutal battle, but unlike a brutal battle in a football game that is meaningless ultimately, these people were involved in a struggle that was literally the powers and the domain of darkness against the domain of light. And what happened? By the grace of God, they had endured. And he says, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. This is fascinating. Reproach and affliction. They had gone through these types of experiences, publicly reproached. They had been publicly afflicted. Reproach means they had been reviled. Affliction, I like the the image of this word, to crush, to compress, to squeeze. And then he says, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Now now, now look at this with me. This, This is really, really interesting. For you had compassion on those in prison And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. This is phenomenal because you get the, if you put it all together, verses 32, 33, and 34, you get the image that, uh, They had been reproached and afflicted and some put in jail. But back then, it was different than the way we do it, like even in America today, where the state is responsible to provide you with clothing, responsible to provide you with food. But back in that day, under Roman persecution, Rome didn't offer you anything. If you're in prison, die in prison. Rome's not going to provide you a meal. Rome's not going to provide you a blanket. Rome's not going to provide you with anything. And if anyone were to bring it, it would be the people that knew these precious Christians. But can you imagine stories like this from history? I was listening to to Pastor Borgman, and he mentioned this, and I saw it in another reference. And it's the idea that what if you're in prison, and I bring you a meal, and I go to the jail, and the jail, the, the jailer says, well, let me ask you who you're here to see. And I say, I'm here to see so-and-so. And they say, well, wait a minute. Let me see your identification. Who are you? Why are you here to see them? What happened then? They now were looked at as sympathizers. Why did Paul say, at my first defense, no one stood with me, but all deserted me because I think it was all too common in the Roman world for people to be tempted not to speak up on their Christian suffering brother. But the people that did speak up and brought and served their needs now were ostracized. And sometimes they were partners with those so treated, they stood beside them. They didn't back down. They came to their defense. What does Jesus say in Matthew 25? For I was hungry and you gave me food. 
I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me and you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. You get the idea. I think we can at least speculate that as they played a part in sharing in their brother's suffering, either in prison themselves and losing their property, or playing a joint role of participation in another brother's or sister's suffering, and now maybe they come back from the prison, or they come back from situations, and what happens to them? Their property is plundered. But what happened here? It's remarkable. Imagine that, you guys. Imagine if we came home from church this morning and our goods were ransacked in our houses. What would your thought be? Call the police. How dare you do that? You're breaking my constitutional rights. Those things would be normal thoughts, wouldn't they? As American citizens, those would be very normal thoughts. I would probably have them before you would. But look what they did, and I wanted to encourage you this morning. Look what they did. They joyfully accepted it, the plundering of their property. And why? He reminds them. I love this because here they are. They're going through life. Have you ever gone through seasons that you trusted God, and yet maybe now you find yourself in a situation of life that's just overwhelming you, and you find yourself just overwhelmed with weariness? And here he is, he's saying, hey, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. Remember, remember, remember. You know, revelation, it's a different word, but it's a synonym of the word recall. When he's talking to the church at Ephesus, as he calls them out for their sin, he says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. When he talks to the church at Sardis, as he calls them out honestly for their situation in their church, he says, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. This morning, God calls us to remember back to the time of our enlightenment. He calls us to remember back to the times that he's been faithful in our lives. Remember back to the times that he's rescued us in the time of suffering, to the times he's rescued us in the times of persecution. He calls us to remember his faithfulness, to remember his grace, to remember who he is as we now walk through new trials. They needed this. We need it. We need it. He says, look, you remember, remember. And, they, and what, 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 what does he say? What got them through before? After they were enlightened, it was the knowledge of something that changed their perspective. What was the knowledge of? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession. He had a better possession and an abiding one. I was looking at this uh, list. I got it from, uh, I looked it up online. And uh, listen to some of these. Uh, there's this guy named Billy in Somalia. Billy was born in a religious family in Mogadishu. His father was a tribal and religious leader who had memorized the entire Quran. Out of curiosity, Billy started studying an English Bible alongside his Quran. After three years of study, he converted to Christianity. 
He learned a lot from Christian radio broadcast. Billy's family threatened him when he, I'm jumping around. Billy's family threatened him when he confessed his own faith. That was when he first began to understand the words of Paul in 2 Timothy 3. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Six years after his conversion, Billy met his first Christian, Somali. Think about that. Six years. Together as underground Christians, they gathered 14 believers and started an underground church. A year later, Muslims discovered the growing Christian, one of their church, uh, one of their church members. Now a famed Somali martyr was the first to be murdered. Then a doctor who attended the church was shot to death. An educator was kidnapped and executed. A Christian man and his Muslim wife were executed in their bedroom. Another church member was taken off a bus and executed in broad daylight. Twelve in all were murdered. None of the murders were ever prosecuted. Today, just two members have survived out of the original church of 14. Billy and one other, Billy escaped many attempts on his life before moving to another country. From that base, he travels in and out of Somalia, planting and nurturing underground house churches. No longer are there only 14 Christians in Mogadishu. The church is quietly growing, partly because of the testimony of those 12 who died for Christ. I was reading, I mean, they just jumped off the page. There's this lady from North Korea. And, and when these, I'm jumping around, these precious pages held the family together. Kim's father always reminded the family that they would pay a price one day for their Christianity. He often said, even if I face death, I will follow Jesus. Each morning, he would hug Kim and remind her to be careful to that day. Every day again and again, he gave her that hug and that warning. Eventually, Kim's father was discovered. The police arrested him and an uncle on a day when Kim was at school. She never saw her father again, and she is now certain he is dead. Story after story, Somalia, North Korea. You could go around the world where people are suffering for the faith. And in the midst of it, because of the faithfulness of our great high priest, these people were enabled to joyfully suffer. I love what Stan read earlier. Did you catch what he said? Here they were. They're being beaten and charged not to speak in the name of Jesus. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. He says, recall those days. Remember those days. You see, those are the people, I remember one time, those are the people that we would say, oh, those are the, you know, Hall of Fame Christians. But get this, those Christians deal with the same flesh we deal with. And those precious believers are prone to discouragement. They're prone to worry. They're prone to fear. And what does he call them to? He says, look, keep going. Don't look back now. Keep running. Remember the days after you were enlightened. Remember who you are. They had known they had a better possession. I love that. It, it's, like, it's like take away the world's goods and it gives me joy to know that I have something that cannot be taken from me. And then it says an abiding one, abiding one. Before we see the word abiding, they knew they had a better possession. I tell you, we're going to stop in a second, but I could go till two o'clock today. I want to be like, all right, y'all go to lunch and whoever wants to stick around, let's go till two. This is amazing. Do you catch that phrase? You catch that phrase? 10 chapters now, a better 
possession. That's not by mistake. A better possession. Well, let's look at why that word is used. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4, having become as much superior, better to angels. Hebrews 7, 19, but on the other hand, a better hope. Hebrews 7, 22, Jesus, the guarantor of a better covenant. Hebrews 8, 6, he brings better promises. Hebrews 9, 23, better sacrifices. And here, Hebrews 10, 34, better possession. Back in Hebrews 6, better things. You see, these people could see the reality of their circumstances because by God's grace, they had their eyes open to behold the supremacy of Jesus. And the supremacy of Jesus was the anchor by which they could move forward. Next time, we're going to cover so many things, but, you know, today as we settle and just think about this, I want you to, uh, how do we put this all together? I I was writing down some thoughts about closing. Um, I thought about something. I don't know about you, but a lot of people that I counsel, I relate to them because I, I face a lot of worries. And sometimes people are surprised at that, and it's one of my, it's a sin struggle for me. And sometimes I get overwhelmed thinking about the future and the unknowns. But one thing I'm comforted about here, I, I want you to comfort yourself with these words from the scripture, because I don't care what your fears are about the future. Do you realize these people didn't know what their future held, but they were being exhorted that they, by the grace of God, could continue all the way to the finish line. And that ought to give you comfort this morning, that no matter what your fears are, no matter what you're wondering about in the future, God's grace is sufficient in Jesus Take away your possessions. Take away your health. Take away your loved ones. Take away your freedoms. Take away your job. It doesn't matter because in Christ Jesus, he's better. Another thought that hit me looking at this is, you know, we, we've got this past. I was reading uh, Stephen Cole, and he's a faithful guy. He said, you know, we got this past recall. We got this present urging to continue on, because that's where we're going next time. We didn't make it that far today. He says, therefore, as you remember how you continued in the past, continue now in the present. As you once remember how you were confident in the past, you weren't confident in yourself. You were confident that through the blood of Christ, you could now draw near. In the future, past, recall, present, live confidently by faith. In the future, look to the promises of God. You know, I was thinking the last thing I want to leave you with today. We need all the means that God has designed for our perseverance. Sometimes it's probably smart to turn down suggestions. Have you ever bought something at Walmart that costs way too much? And you're at the counter, and they're like, hey, would you like a three-year, uh, would you like a three-year all-parts warranty? And I'm like, how much? $29.99. And I'm like, well, I've already spent, blah, 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 blah. And I'm thinking, uh-uh, uh-uh, I don't need it. I don't want it. I don't need it. I'm thinking I'll need it. <laughs> I don't need it. And I say, they're giving me advice. They're telling me, how dare us, and I say this out of love to you because I'm as prone to this as you are. Let us be very cautious to look to God 
through the pages of his word and say, God, I know that you have ordained these means for me to arrive safely at the destination. But God, I don't think I really need that one. I don't need that one. I don't need that one. I don't need that one. I'll take that one. See, what have we learned? God has designed the body of Christ for our safe arrival at our destination. God has designed the priest's word to guide us to arrive safely at our destination. God has designed the red word. When we read the word, God has designed prayer. And we're going to see God even designs his discipline in our lives. But this morning, friend, are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? This morning, some of you may be terrified at the thought of the judgment of God, and maybe rightfully so. But I got good news for you. I got good news for you. We have a great high priest who came to take our place. And the Bible says you may be the youngest in the room that can understand what I'm saying. The Bible teaches you, little child, that by God's grace, you can look to Jesus and trust in him, and he will fully save you. He will save you. He will protect you. He will keep you. And that same truth that would comfort a little child's heart is the same truth that breaks down the arrogance and the pride of a seasoned adult who's always tried to be good enough to earn their way to God. But it could be that the grace of God has pricked your heart this morning to make you really sober and to even see the reality of coming judgment upon your life. This morning, look to Christ. Believe on him. Trust in him. And he will save you. Would you bow your head? Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the, the truthfulness. Even in those parts that are hard for us to often accept, Lord, we're often tempted to look away. But God, I thank you for your revelation that it is complete. Lord, I thank you for the miracle of the kindness in Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, today that we would be a room full of people overwhelmed by your grace. We would trust in you. Lord, I pray today you'd help us to remember the past. Lord, it's hard for us to even relate to many of these experiences that this church was going through. Lord, we haven't faced that type of persecution in our lives. But Lord, the principles of being forgetful, the principles of being discouraged, the principles of being tempted to wonder are all so dear to our heart, Lord. And I pray, God, that we would look to your word and we would heed the warning and we would follow the exhortation. Lord, teach us how to follow this. Teach us how to live by it. Teach us to see the beauty of the gospel of Jesus and the hope that it provides to weary souls like ours. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.